Hi, welcome back to the Mob Mentality Show. I'm Chris Lucian and my co-host is Austin Chadwick. And today we have Anders to talk with us about cheating on Agile. Uh, but first, uh, maybe Anders, you can give us a brief introduction and we can get into the conversation. Sure. So about me, I'm a software engineer uh, by training and I started a company uh, a long time ago, uh, more than 10 years ago, uh, to do software engineering projects for clients. Um, and we did a lot of uh, Agile, uh, and that's also the name of my company, Iterate. It was all about iterations. And then the company has evolved, and we've learned a few things since then. Uh, I still do uh, programming, uh, but I also do a lot of other more entrepreneurial uh, type of uh, things, including uh, also starting to invest in other companies at this time. Nice. nice. Fantastic. Right on. What was the kind of genesis uh, for this article you wrote, Cheating on Agile? Was there like a story or like uh, some experiences that kind of caused you to be inspired to write here? <laughs> yeah, good question. I think, you know, it's, it goes way back because the, the, when, when we started Iterate, um, it was really a, a kind of a rebellion to uh, all these practices that people were having at the time. Um, back then, it was all about these big waterfall type of projects. Uh, and we were trying to just challenge people more almost in the common sense department. Like, why are we doing this? And it seemed like everybody were doing what they were doing because everybody else were doing it. Like you're just this copycat type of mentality. And I think we trained ourselves back then to start recognizing these things and practices and tools, they depend a lot on context. Um, and just as a side note, you know, when we started Iterate, a lot of people were actually upset about the name because they found that working in iterations, that wasn't a responsible way of working. And it's crazy to think about now, but the, the thinking back then was that if you do this uh, software projects, you should know upfront uh, what you're going to do because you're basically spending someone else's money. So the responsible way to work is to plan everything ahead. So iteration uh, by uh, just the definition was irresponsible. So, uh, you know, the world has evolved uh, since then. Um, I think it's hard to find that kind of opinion now, but these, um, you can easily get entrenched in any type of practice. So when we started doing innovation uh, in uh, Iterate, we saw that many of these agile practices that we also had been proponents of and been doing for a long time, they didn't necessarily make any sense any longer. And I tried to kind of put it out that, you know, it's about context again. Uh, if you're in a big software project or in even just in an, a big established company versus a very new company or a new idea in, a, uh, in an established company, these are different contexts and the practices that follow them should be uh, what works and not just this copycat type of thinking. We're doing this because we have always been doing this or because everybody else is doing it. And it just, uh, I don't know, I think it was, I it came up with this title because it felt like we were really, you know, cheating, cheating on Agile. We had been talking so much about Agile. We had been doing all these type of projects, uh, teaching our customers how to do it, Agile transformations, all of this. And now we were suddenly starting to do something different. And uh, when I just came up with that title, I, the, the blog post just came out uh, I think it was one of the fastest I've ever wrote, written, actually. 
I think I, uh, I, I think I've had a similar feeling of, you know, kind of the lack of experimentation or like compla complacency leads to, you know, uh, bad things down the line. Right. So if you're, you know, you could be iterating on your software, but not on your process. Right. And so the meta, uh, the, the meta analysis of your process ends up falling apart. Is that kind of what you're getting at? Yeah, I, it is. And I think there's this thing that I learned uh, from Kent Beck once that he says that any methodology really is about managing fear because mm -hmm. we're all afraid of uh, wasting our time or building the wrong thing or in generally just doing the wrong thing. Um, and I think it's very um, easy and tempting to kind of just rely on a process, rely on a methodology and just say to yourself, well, we're, you know, we're following this very recognized, established way of working. Everybody else is doing it. So, you know, I should uh, rest assured that this will be a success. And that might work for some time. And, you know, you, we, we don't want to have too much anxiety because that doesn't make us productive. But it can also be very deceiving. Um, so, and, and uh, you know, still there are, a lot of features that are being built that shouldn't have been built, they're being built in a very agile way, but it's not like we solved all these problems uh, that agile also uh, originated from um, just by going agile. So um, if you really want to confront complexity, um, you have to go beyond established practices and you have to think for yourself. And there are some, I think there are some, um, uh, ways of thinking that are more universal and more timeless learning as one example right great teamwork these kinds of things they are more uh, something that usually makes sense but the way you learn the way you form a team uh, the way you build a team and the way you build a product that depends a lot a lot more than what the methodologies uh, want you to believe yeah and I, and I feel like this kind of gets back to what is agile or what's the heart of it? And what's funny about it is I think the impression a lot of people get is what you said is that agile is a process. It's a methodology. But then if you look at the agile manifesto, individuals and interactions over processes and tools. Yeah. <laughs> so it's almost like somewhere along the line, it got forgotten and turned into a process or a tool. Right. You know, and yeah. so. <laughs> well, that, you know, the fine irony, it's, you know, I, I'm th I think they're all pulling their hair, really. Uh, uh, but it, there's a business around this too, right? You, you sell books, classes, certifications, all of this. And uh, the easy sell is the practice and the tool. The really hard sell is that you have to change your mindset. You have to go deep. This is also about uh, yourself and who you are um, these things don't sell as well uh, they don't that if you want to scale a business on this and especially also when the, the the laggards like the big companies started doing this and they wanted to buy all these types of programs like we're doing the agile transformation now there's got to be a standard way to do this right um, it's the it's the more superficial stuff that tends to fly and that's when you very easily totally disconnect from the uh origin um of things like agile cool, 
Cool. Yeah. Well, one follow-up question I had was um, maybe getting into some of the your, your discoveries that you shared, shared about in this article, but what, what's some salient examples for you of where you felt like you were cheating on Agile, like a concrete example or two? <laughs> yeah, I think that the first one was that we had, we started having uh, people on multiple teams and that felt like a big heresy uh, because, you know, years earlier, that was one of our big battles to say, no, it doesn't make sense to put people on different teams at the same time. There's just this uh, context switching cost of it. Uh, it's stressful. Um, it doesn't build the teams in any way. And this was usually it's just a, a, a result of poor resource planning. Um, so, and then uh, we started doing it. Uh, but once again, the context was very different. Uh, but, but at least to me, that's when it started to dawn on me that, okay, our, because the first question I had to ask is, are we just becoming uh, those, that bad company, right? That like, be, because of, I don't know, circumstances, bad excuses, uh, are we now not any longer able to live up to these principles that we've always had? And we had a discussion, and, but we just felt like, no, this is, not, this, this is not the case because we're doing we're working on super early stage ideas. And there's so much difference just in that context. Um, so, but that's when I started paying attention to it and made, started making a list. Uh, what else changes now? Um, yeah, and it was very, very exciting uh, discoveries that we made. Nice. And Chris, I think, I think you, oh, go ahead, Chris, sorry. <laughs> I was gonna say, uh, how did you, uh, how did, I, how are the changes making it into the system? You know, uh, wh what was, you know, what was, how was it considered like status quo and how did you break that? You know, what was your, what was the method for escaping complacency, I guess? Well, one of the things that we did uh, when we changed from being a, like a focused consultancy into building ventures so I'll just say briefly, the context is that in Iterate, every employee gets some time on, they can spend in whichever way they want. Uh, and we are encouraged everybody to play around with ideas and do experimentation. If they find something that flies, uh, we can spin it out in, into a new company and we'll invest in it. And there are employees who worked on it, they become entrepreneurs. So that's like the basic idea uh, of Iterate. So, but what we realized when we started this, this was a big change for us, is that uh, the normal business model of a consultancy isn't going to work any longer. Because in a consultancy, it's usually, around, it revolves around incentivizing people to um, uh, invoice as many hours as they can, right? That, let's just say it the way it is, right? That's, that's really what a consultancy is all about. But this is like a long-term game, right? If you build an idea into a company and spin it out, we're talking years, many, many years, maybe even a decade. So we couldn't have this yearly focus. Um, so we removed all of those incentives and then we invited every employee to invest. So they got, we gave them a good deal to invest and get shares in the company. And now everybody were invested in the long-term uh, profitability, which was about these ideas. And it just turned out that people were, they had a lot of ideas and they were really uh, energized about this change. A lot of our employees wanted this. 
So this experimentation just started by itself. And I was, my, my biggest worry when we did this was, do, will we even have any ideas to work on? Like what's, uh, will this just be spinning at the, uh, from the start or will we get um, traction and, and be able to build many different things? And that turned out to be the, the, the least of our problem. Um, also, we saw that um, people were emerging from unexpected corners of the company. Um, people who had been maybe not so visible, um, they uh, came. Maybe they like they came up with some of the most innovative ideas, and so this was very organic in a way. We were very um, conscious not to tell them what type of ideas we wanted. Um, because we wanted them to come up with stuff they were passionate about. So, and when this started happening, that's when I, well, like my example with uh, uh, having uh, one person on multiple teams, that just happened by itself because that person was passionate about two ideas and was contributing to two different teams. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't something we said, it's more like we let things very, become very loose opened up and more observed what's happening now. And that's how we started iterating also on the, like the, the, the mothership, like the, the, the yeah, the, the, the company itself and not just on the ideas and the market opportunities. I think I've, um, I think I've felt very similarly in the past. Right. And so, uh, some things, um, you know, even though I kind of had the power to command and control an idea, I, you know, we, we bring it to, to everybody on the team. And then, and then, you know, even, uh, even in situations where I'm just like, I bite my tongue or grit my teeth and then <laughs> and go, go along. Um, and, and it's, it's really interesting, you know, the, the wisdom of the crowd really does end up, um, you know, making, uh, you know, powerful and, and, and uh, very, I don't know, relevent decisions. Um, and, and also, uh, I think, you know, exploring passion, right? Like you, you said, they, you know, this person's passion, passionate in these areas, and just trying to lean into passion, I think is such a big multiplier for um, effectiveness and, uh, you know, different ways of going about that. So I, I think that, you know, I, yeah, I, I relate, I think, to what you're saying. I think it's uh, a really good um, perspective. Great. And, and I think the, I was, you know, what you wrote and what you're saying here about context switching and staying on one team, it did challenge me uh, a little bit in my, th my thinking. And I actually did go through back through the Agile Manifesto and the principles. And, you know, I didn't see anything about that, which is interesting. I wonder where it came from, you know, it, yep. I guess it came from somewhere else maybe. And it got associated with Agile. And I reflected on my own experience. And I think when I did hear that kind of coming from the Agile community, my first response was yes, because I came from a, uh, um, early in my career, I was in a waterfall shop where I was on five different waterfall projects and it was a sign. There was no choice. There was no passion. It was just yeah, like, yeah. Austin, you're on this one, you're on this one, this one, this one. And there was a project manager for each one, all asking for, you know, 10 things tomorrow. And at one point I'm like, you know, Hey, here's all the things from this project, from this project, from this project, what do you want me to do? I need help to like, you know, 
I can't do all of them. Right. And so, you know, my first inclination was like, yeah, like that seems way better just to be single focused. But over time, I really love what you, you both are saying that we're aut autonomy and the people who have the uh, competence and um, abilities to decide, right? You want to give power to the people who have the knowledge, right? And so, yep. you, know, you know, it seems like, you know, it's truly agile to favor interactions and individuals, right? And if the individuals think that following two passions will be more valuable for the end goal for the company, then, then why not? Right. You know? And so, I mean, I guess there, there will be some context switching waste um, with that, but it's a cost that maybe there's more benefits that come along with it. Um, yeah, yeah. One of the benefits is that you get uh, diversification uh, in what ideas you work on. Right. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I think this is a mistake that a lot of companies make when it comes to innovation is that they give too much of the answers up front. So it, so the kind of the right answer is usually you find that in a, some kind of strategy document that somebody way up in the hierarchy made, um, which is usually very much focused backwards. It's like they say we have to build on our strengths, but the strengths are usually those old products or somehow related to the old products that you're trying to get away from. And what happens is that you won't get to see what people are truly passionate about because once you say that, People will want in the company, they will want to be compliant with the strategy. So whichever idea they come with, will come with is based on that strategy, what they already know. But if you don't say that, if you keep it much more open, something very interesting happens. Uh, you discover that passion, but also new type of constellations start to form, different teams start to form and they gather around these things that they're passionate about. And usually those things are compliant with the mother company uh, because these are uh, skilled people who have competencies. It's not, it's not likely that they will go and create something like, a, you know, you're a software company and they'll say, oh, we'll start a sushi restaurant. Like maybe they will, but I, I find that very, it's not likely, right? And there's this story I heard, which fascinated me about how Zoom started. Uh, I be believe we are on Zoom uh, right now. Uh, and that was in, back in uh, 2011. Uh, Cisco acquired two companies, uh, WebEx and Tanberg. Tanberg was actually in Norwegian. Um, and they felt like they were uh, complete in video conferencing. They had the high-end hardware software video conferencing from Tanberg. And they had the software-based one from WebEx. And there was this one guy called Eric Young. He worked in Cisco. And he said, no, I think we should build it for smartphones as well. But that didn't fit the strategy. But he was so passionate about this idea that when they finally rejected him, he quit and he started this company that's called Zoom. Uh, and, you know, just for comparison, I read that uh, last year, Zoom was valued more than the six largest airlines in the world combined. And that could have been Cisco, but it didn't fit the strategy. And when you see it in retrospect, come on, of course, Zoom, right? It's, and yeah. of course you need video conferencing for smartphones as well. So, but back, back in the days, it was just seen as a stupid idea. Hmm. But the passion 
uh, took him to become an entrepreneur. And this is usually the story about any successful entrepreneur. They have that idea in their previous company and they get rejected and they quit. Um, and then they succeed on their own. Yeah. And, and I think, and I know there's something you're passionate about, Chris, is uh, creating a kind of lean startup, you know, uh, okay. pipeline within a company, you know, so it doesn't yeah. have to. <laughs> and, and yeah, that, I mean, that, that's, that's a really good point. It's like, you know, no idea should really die on the vine, like, especially like that one, right? Uh, the, the Zoom example is a really great example of, you know, how, um, how inexpensive would it have been, you know, relatively to the size of Cisco for them to in investigate those things uh, and, and actually like give it a fair chance, right? Um, and, you know, a, a lot of this stuff is like evaluating business case and, and, and you know, like you're also saying, you know, time to go and experiment um, and, and build those things up. Uh, and so, and yeah, a lot of companies do end up creating their own competitors, but, um, yeah, you know, one, one thing, like when I talk to other leader leaders at like big companies that are building products, you know, I kind of ask like, how, how does an idea make it from anyone in the company to a product? Um, and, and then if not, you know, is that person the, you know, did that person feel, uh, either heard or, or that their, or their idea was fairly evaluated against kind of everything else going on at the company? Um, and a lot of people don't have an answer for that. Um, and so I think it's really interesting, uh, you know, every single person at every company probably has ideas about, you know, oh, things would be better if this was a thing. Um, and, and if that's not getting funneled in and, and I've even seen people grow resentful because their ideas weren't heard, right? It's like, you know, oh, I told my boss my idea and hopefully that'll go somewhere. Um, and then years later, they're like, my boss never acted on this idea that I had. And now our competitors have it and they're mad, but, but in reality, there's like no process. And, and sometimes that, you know, that person just didn't bring it forward to anyone that would make it happen. So, um, it's a lot of connecting the dots and making sure that, uh, things make their way through the appropriate channels, but also, um, you know, not getting stuck, you know, in, in their ways. Right. Um, Absolutely. And it's also a matter of uh, accountability that instead of uh, allowing people to complain uh, that their boss didn't like their idea, yeah. why not just let them have a crack at it? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and uh, if, if it doesn't work, uh, it's actually more on the employee, at least if they got the, the support that they yeah. needed. Um, and I think if they get that experience and that's not a bad thing, you know, you tried and it didn't work and we learned a lot from it. I think that can very be a very effective catalyst for bridging the gap also between the manager and the employees. Yeah. Um, but just stop judging those ideas and yeah. instead judge how the team works. Are they are they passionate and are they learning? Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think diversity diversity of ideas is kind of goes back to the context switching thing a bit. Yeah. Uh, I've definitely seen the value of that. So um, over the last four years, I could have, you know, possibly I could have stayed, uh, you know, so we do software development via mob programming. I could have stayed on one product for those four years the whole time, right? And that would definitely 
make the context switching not happen, right? Um, and there's ways to, you know, have diversity of ideas come into a product other than switching around. But now I'm about to do my fourth or fifth switch. And I, I do have to say that while it has led to maybe less depth, it definitely has led to a huge amount more diversity ideas than let's say if I was just on one team of three for four years, right? And I, I can especially imagine in your space where you're, um, you're really trying to hit innovation um, as far as uh, business ideas and things that uh, that would be even more important, <laughs> you know? Yeah, so, uh, absolutely. And it also builds, helps you build network in the organization, which is another key um, success factor. You know, you got to know a lot of people if you want things to happen. Um, so switching teams is, uh, so this doesn't necessarily have to be waste, but it's once again, it's about context. So if you like coming back to your first wonderful uh, job, Austin, I think that sounds still sounds to me like a lot of waste that you were like, uh, uh, had to go between these five projects. That's just crazy. That's not a good idea, but that was a different context. Um, yeah. Yeah. Sure. So you can't just judge it from the surface. You have to, um, to, to look at the context uh, also. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's also, I think, um, this uh, other aspect uh, of time and how you look at time is very important. That's probably the most important uh, difference uh, between like established agile practices and innovation. And maybe also the most contrarian one. Um, because we're so into uh, not wasting our time, uh, right? And, and ship stuff to production, these kind, kind of things. And it's all a lot about uh, flow. Um, so what, what's the time it takes you from a customer needs something until you delivered, right? And that, that's kind of the value chain that you're trying to optimize, which is of course a great idea if you have a, product that flies um, and you know for sure that we need to serve this customer uh, in once again then it makes sense but um, one um, there was this talk uh, a TED talk by uh, Bill Gross uh, about the single most important factor for startup success and they had looked at a big data set and looked at things like uh, idea team uh, markets, uh, technology, and so on. But it turns out that the, none of them were the most important success factor. The, the, the most distinguishing uh, success factor for startup success was market timing. Hitting the market at the right time. And usually when you mess that up, it's because it's not because you're too late, it's because you're too early in the market. And that's another uh, thing that we, uh, we, we saw this research and then we started experiencing it ourselves. And you know, an example of this is that uh, you, you brought it up actually like, oh, I had this great idea and we didn't get to work on it. And a few years later, somebody else does it. And it's like, oh no, it should have been me. But maybe if you had started on that idea two years earlier, you may not have succeeded. Maybe that would have been two years too early. Maybe the, your users weren't ready for this. 
uh, or other factors that are at play. And this is super complex, impossible to tell. But the way you can say something about it is that usually when you see something that flies, uh, that becomes a tremendous success, you will find startups or innovation projects that tried something similar earlier and didn't make it. Um, and if so, if, if that just happens a few times, there might be other uh, explanations. But when it happens on a large scale, it certainly uh, testifies to this point that, that you have to hit the market at the right time. So now uh, you do innovation and you want to be agile, uh, but you don't want really to uh, minimize lead time. You don't really want to ship as fast as possible uh, because uh, you want basically your experiments to run, but you don't want to go all in at once. Uh, you want many of them uh, running um, and then turn time to your advantage um, and see what flies. Um, and then when you find something that flies, your context starts to change. And now you may want to actually create flow, minimize lead time and do all of these things because now you're actually building a product. Mm, okay. Yeah, I'm reminded of lean startup uh, quite a bit um, because kind of what, one thing that they talk about uh, in, in that book in particular is uh, kind of the white glove treatment. And so um, a lot of these services, uh, you know, especially, you know, websites that allow somebody to come to your house to do something. Some of them were just a web form with no automation on the back end, and it just emailed the person. And, and so their beta was no code at all. Um, and they have a lot of examples in the book where they, they started with uh, kind of a facade front end, a, a web form going into a spreadsheet, and then, and then they would make phone calls and, and they would just have humans carrying out all the operations that would happen inside the software. And a lot of it was just to determine whether or not the market was ready or, or inviting of the idea. Mm. Um, and so I, I really like that, like really, you know, really low investment upfront startup idea until it's, it's ready to transition. Um, and then I forget the name of the company uh, in, the, in the book, but they were saying that, you know, they, they kind of put together something that was just standing on a bare skeleton and then, and then they saw, they, they saw where their pivot needed to be. And then they like started doing things like writing unit tested code and, um, and like thinking more about the long term. And so, but up until the point where they just proved that there was a customer, there was just almost everything was just kind of throwaway. Um, yeah. yeah. And, and the e even more contrarian thing there is that, you know, another agile practice is that don't have things in production that you're not using, right? Yeah. But, you know, if you do this kind of experiment that you said now and you have that landing page, why should you take it down? Why not just keep it there? Yeah. Just make sure you get an email if somebody fills out that form, right? And maybe in a few weeks or even a few months, it starts to convert because somebody finds it or it becomes relevant in some way. Yeah, I just thought of one example. Uh, the Dropbox demo was yeah. just, just a video. It was a fake video of how they thought Dropbox should work. And then people just started sharing it like crazy and they just got tons of interest. And they're like, yes, we should make this product. Um, yeah. so, so they knew their idea was you know, facing the right direction even before they wrote a line of code. So um, all, all really interesting sort of stuff. Yeah. 
And I think similar with that, the Dollar Shave Club video that also went uh, completely viral. Like they expected to get a few thousand views and they yeah. had millions in like a week or so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Nice. Then that's, but that's when you have to start building really, really fast. And yes. yeah. once again, <laughs> you're already the context, behind. <laughs> yeah, and now the context changes. Now you may want all your coders to be on the same team and stop context switching and all of that, right? But yeah. that's because the context is it's kind of like uh, the concept black swarm, black swan farming. Is that kind of the yeah. the idea that you're you're putting multiple parallel ideas out there and then um, and then if one really kind of hits the mark, uh, then doing that. And, and I think, uh, so I think agile and, and, you know, lean in a sense, both became really popular because a lot of companies knew their market existed already, right? They've already answered the question, does the market want the product, but they were all, all behind and all in emergency mm -hmm. mode. Um, mm -hmm. and then, and then that, became such a huge industry because we were, there were so many companies in need of rescue, right? Um, that, uh, you know, just like you said, it became the status quo. And now all of a sudden this other aspect of innovation be became completely ignored because we swung from one side of the pendulum to the other. Uh, and, and so, you know, it, it isn't exactly a one size fits all and it's all contextual, like you said. So I, I really like the idea. And the ones who have understood this uh, at length is the venture capitalists. Yeah. <laughs> and it's kind of a, a, a little irony that I think that they, they will always tell entrepreneurs that they have to focus and build one thing and only that one thing. But look at what the VC is doing. Like yeah. they are diverse. Investing in everybody. <laughs> They're just firing bullets in every direction, placing bets all over the place. Yeah. But of course, then they want each and every bet to just be you know, that's my bet. So don't you dare do something else. Yeah. But as an innovator, um, that, you know, you should think more like the VC. And this is back to uh, who you are um, and the whole, the, the value stream that you're a part of as an innovator, which to me really is about uh, what happens from you have an idea until it's a market success. Yeah. And that, that value stream is usually very, very fragmented. In the startup world, there's some, something between entrepreneur and investors, and things fall between the cracks. Um, and uh, in the corporate world, it's usually about too much focus, not enough diversification on ideas. Yeah. And you can uh, own that whole value stream. Um, you can really uh, innovate much more consistency with much more, con more consistency uh, and, and just very increased hit rate. And I think we're just too used to, we have kind of accepted that these things mostly fail. And of course they should still fail a lot because we have to try a lot of stupid ideas, but I think we could increase the hit rate tremendously if we look at it more holistically. Yeah, you're not truly experimenting if you're, uh, if you're not meeting the, uh, I guess the medical term LD 50, right. Or the lethal dose 50%. Right. Um, and so your, your ideas should be failing at least 50% of the time. Otherwise you're just much too com conservative and you, you have the, uh, you're very likely to have disruptive innovation sneak up behind you. Um, yeah, yeah, <laughs> totally. And I think, uh, tying it back to agile a little bit, I can, I, I, 
I like your kind of like a broad brushstroke kind of overview of history there, Chris, a little bit. And I think if you look at the principles, one of the first ones is our highest priority is to satisfy the customer through earliest, early and continuous delivery of valuable software. Yeah. Uh, so I think the big squishy word there is valuable, right? Yeah. <laughs> so if you know, you know, it almost seems like it's assuming that the market has already been tested and we know it's valuable, right? Um, and, um, and so that I think is, is maybe where the, the disconnect can happen is that, um, yeah, if we do know this is valuable or it's a really good experiment to run to actually build it with code and not a facade or something cheaper, um, then early and continuous delivery is incredibly helpful. <laughs> but in other contexts, you know, having this big, you know, honking team machine to pump stuff out um, early and continuously might be the wrong thing if it's, you know, that yeah, you need you need to you need to sort of verify the market with as little investment as possible. Um, but I, I think two things happen from that, right? So uh, I think that's, first of all, that's the big difference between prescribed agile like practices, right? And, you know, the, the company driven ones, the certifications, all that, and, and the direct conflict that those things have with lean startup, right? Um, because lean startup is saying, you know, in the most lean way possible, evaluate the value of an idea. And those agile practices that have been kind of predefined for you are, uh, are saying, you know, how do you already take an existing valuable software and deliver on it? Um, yeah. And so I think that the two practices are answering two different questions. Um, and then, you know, one thing that I like to ask people is like, uh, not only, you know, like I said earlier, how do you, how do you incorporate ideas from all across the organization, but how do you work on uh, a new technology that you don't know will make you money? Like, is it possible to get resources in your company assigned to that? Um, mm -hmm. And, and when people say no, then you just say, should it be? And then like, it gets people moving. Right. So like, if you're trying to convince your company to do this, it's not like, it's not like they need, you know, so, so the, the, the Socratic method, like the, the way of asking questions to challenge somebody kind of in authority is like, are you afraid of disruptive innovation? You know, does that keep you up at night? And if mm -hmm. they say no, well, then that's a whole other problem, but they'll likely say yes. And then, and then if they say yes to that, then it's like, okay, well, do you have a system within the company right now that will allow for something disruptive to be invented within the company? Mm. And, and so, uh, and I think just a lot of companies just don't have that. And if you, if you drill down that path of like Socratic questioning, then I think a lot of, uh, it can change a lot of minds very quickly because you, you get it like, well, you know, should we, like, is this a, is this a corporate risk if that we're not doing that? And, um, you know, if at any point that, that line of questioning stops, then it's very likely that that company will, will eventually be disrupted by a competitor. Um, you know, and then, and then they're led to either a very expensive acquisition uh, or worse, a partnership or worse, they, they just fade into obscurity, right? Yeah, for sure. And it's you often, a lot of the time in that type of questioning, you'll find other of these efficiency paradoxes. Uh, you know, we don't have the time to do this experimentation. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and, and, and I think it's, uh, it's about how you, uh, the numbers, how you look at the numbers, what does productivity look like in your company? Um, it's, you know, is it about uh, utilization of resources? 
uh, time to market, uh, or like even customer satisfaction, but even customer satisfaction will be about your existing products that are about to be disrupted, right? So yeah, it's the declining a little bit. And the, the answer might not be to get that back up. It, it's more like build something new, but yeah. there's no time for it. There's no, because it isn't valued uh, and it's seen as waste. And the organization has been so, become so efficient that there's just no slack. Uh, there's no room for anything to happen by itself. Yeah. Um, and you think that you can kind of orchestrate this innovation to happen. No, no, we have that solved. We have an innovation department, right? Yeah. But <laughs> yeah. Who they should be in the innovation department? Yeah, like, yeah. how do you know they're really passionate about this? Because if they're not passionate about it, it doesn't help if they're learning because they'll quit their job a long time before they succeed when things start to get hard, right? That's, that's like kind of the, uh, I guess, the main argument against a Skunkworks team, right? So, you know, uh, some examples of Skunkworks have been successful in the past, but I think one key thing was that uh, people in those teams were, were passionate about the direction they were going. But then large corporations later were like, you know, see this Skunkworks example? This is perfect. This is what we need. And they take a number of people not passionate about skunk yep. you know they say oh all of you who are the best on these on these products instead work on something innovative and new and then they become a cost center and then all of a sudden they're just draining company resources and then the team feels awful because they're not producing anything of value to the company um and and morale goes down right so like yeah it, having like a dedicated skunk works team can be very dangerous and, and instead it should be like passion driven i you know i totally agree yeah, and it's, uh, I, I think you, you talked to Mary and Tom Poppendick earlier uh, <laughs> on your show. We talked to them too. Um, they even invested a little bit in our company. Nice. Nice. Uh, and one of the things that Mary told us when we set a new direction is that you cannot charter innovation. Yeah. The only thing you can do is to allow for it to happen and train people. You know, it's also a lot about skills, of course, yeah. but you have to open up and allow for it for it to happen hmm. and it sounds very scary but it is it really shouldn't be because especially in the software world we can experiment very rapidly like lean startup style so you will get a lot of learnings and data and insights actually very very rapidly so it's really not a big it doesn't have to be a big thing yeah but you have to allow for people give people more slack and allow for people to find that passion and be playful at work and don't give them the answers. Don't, don't tell them what type of ideas you want, because that's, that's the first way you screw it up. Right. Then you, <laughs> they, they will kind of fake it because yeah. they will tell you what they believe you want to hear. So and it, it's such an interesting experiment, experiment to run in itself. You can do it just once. Like, you know, don't go all, all in at, uh, in the beginning and just see what happens. Yeah, right on, right on. So I'll definitely won't go back uh, to the team and, you know, command people to innovate. You know, no, just yeah. <laughs> It's like comedians. Like, you can't tell a comedian, be funny. Nah, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like tell, a joke, tell a joke. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> All right. Well, to end the show, Anders is going to be funny. Do it now. No, oh, yeah. <laughs> um, well, I'm, I'm tempted to ask you, more, you know, about more questions, you know, uh, uh, I was maybe hoping to get a little bit into Ketbeck's 3X thinking and all that, but unfortunately we're out of time. So maybe we'll pick it up another another time, another day. Uh, but before we uh, close the show, uh, is there anything you'd like to share or plug? Well, I think this was a, a really good conversation, good questions. And I just want to say that uh, to me, Agile really is about your mindset and that you approach everything you do with curiosity and with a desire to learn. And if you do that, uh, you'll probably get much more agile than whichever practice is currently, you know, in fashion. Right on, right on. Well, well really fortunate to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for your time. And uh, yeah, so to our audience, um, if you're, uh, you know, in a context where maybe this conversation between you know, quote unquote, agile versus, you know, maybe true agility, true lean thinking and uh, innovative thinking, uh, you know, please share this episode with them and uh, please like and subscribe. We love getting feedback through all the various ways, whether it's through YouTube, LinkedIn, Twitter, and all the things. And uh, thanks again, Anders. And uh, until uh, next time, everyone, have a, uh, have a good one and uh, mob on. Bye, Bye everybody. <laughs>